You're listening to Pazichipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 15. Nicole, finally, it's a real joy to have you on the show after months planning and adjusting our agendas. 
So thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Rocio, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here today, and I love listening to your show. Oh, thank you. Well, I cannot wait to tell the world your lovely story because you've come really a long way mastering traditional uh, recipes from Mexico that really could not be more different from the type of food that you can find in Pennsylvania, where you grew up. Then again, you come from a family of great home cooks. And also, well, I know your German-American mother uh, was also a very proud baker too. In many ways, your upbringing in a culinary diverse home was very different, to say the least. I would like you to share with us what it was like for you to see and experience this contrast and when did you realize that the way you ate at home was, by all standards, not like everybody else's? Um, so both of my parents are amazing cooks. My dad um, makes amazing food. My mom was a, a good cook and an amazing baker. And so I learned a lot from them growing up, just watching them being in the kitchen. And while we ate, I would say traditional American foods, um, everything was always made at home. And we also had in like at, at the holidays, we had, um, you know, Greek foods mixed in my mom. Um, makes made the most amazing baklava. My dad makes a really good Greek soup called avgalemino soup. And I guess I started to notice uh, the difference when I would go to my friend's house, uh, their houses, and I would see what they would eat. And I just noticed that there was so much... I don't want to say more care, but yes, more care taken at, um, you know, at the cooking at my house where, uh, my parents always sought out like fresh ingredients and everything was really tried. Um, my mom and my dad really tried to make things from scratch. When you start growing up and you start, oh, didn't you eat all this wonderful food at home and your mom and dad cooked? Exactly, exactly. Like, oh, you, you haven't eaten this your whole life? <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> Well, I guess this was an outstanding introduction for you into uh, how to enjoy all these culinary pleasures as part of your of your normal life, no? Yes, absolutely. So now it's 2017, and if my maths are correct, it's almost 10 years since the first time you moved temporarily to Mexico as part of your work and studies experience. I'm sure that you know, apart from the culture shock. Uh, an overwhelming sensory experience that was your first encounter with Mexican food. I know that for you it was a true gastronomic awakening. So in your case, which would you say was the cultural or even sociological aspect that either opened up a whole new way of understanding food for you or, and I guess the second might be more the case, uh, which aspect resonated with you, with your own life? Um, so that's a great question. So I, um, the first time I traveled to Mexico was 10 years ago, and I went to your hometown of Puebla, um, and I had no idea what to expect. I guess like my only encounter with what was considered Mexican food um, around here in Pennsylvania was hard shell tacos with cheese and lettuce on top. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that, because that's just a take on what, um, you know, people were trying to recreate um, what they thought was Mexican food here. But when I arrived, 
arrived in Mexico, um, my senses were just flooded with all of these new and amazing foods, like fruits that I had never tried before. The soursop or guanabana is one of my favorite fruits. I would say what really solidified my experience with the food culture there was the family that I stayed with. So I stayed with this most amazing family in Puebla, and my host mother, her name was Tere, she loved to cook, and I think we just bonded over that, and she made us the most amazing meals every single night. I remember they welcomed me with tacos árabes. It was, an, it was a fantastic experience, and I would talk to other students in my same program, and I would say, you know, well, how, how was your dinner last night, or what were you eating? And they'd be like, oh, we just had some quesillo or queso Oaxaca from the refrigerator, and I said, oh my goodness, my host mom makes the most amazing enchiladas rojas, and I just love them, and so I think they knew that I loved the food, and Terry would make a lot of different things for me to try, and in fact, when I was getting ready to come back to the United States, she said to me, we want to get you a going away gift. What would you like? And I said, you know what I would like? I would like a tortilla press. So I remember we walked down to the local store and she bought me a tortilla press and it's the one that I use to this day. And it always makes me think of her and, and that first experience that I had with Mexican food. Such a charming first encounter. It was uh, indeed love at first bite. I guess for many cultural epicureans and gastronomy devotees would love to have unlimited resources and time to explore and learn and travel, go to dreamy food destinations. But you, Nicole, have found a very clever way to combine your passion for teaching Spanish that goes way beyond grammar with research and travel. And I'm sure many people in the audience will be surprised to learn of the many possibilities to match these two things uh, the way you have very cleverly. And uh, in your recent trip to Mexico uh, a few months ago, when we had the opportunity to meet, you were just in the middle of a very impressive tour through several states, attending cooking classes with traditional cooks. And all of this, uh, like I said, was part of your own personal training. I would really like you to share with the listeners how did you put together this project and how can people follow a similar path the way uh, you have? So I did have the most amazing opportunity this summer. And in fact, I went to Mexico for three weeks this summer. I was funded by a program called Fund for Teachers. And I traveled to four different cities. We started in Mexico City, then went to Puebla. then went further south to Oaxaca. And then we went up to San Miguel de Allende. And the idea of the project was to explore Spanish language and history and culture through cooking. So I can't take full credit for the project. I was contacted contacted by Daniela Cho of the Spiced Kitchen. She found me through Instagram and she knew that I was a Spanish teacher and that I loved Mexican cuisine. And she said, hey, would you be interested in doing a project with me this summer and that combines our love of Spanish and Mexican cooking? I said, absolutely. So we actually wrote um, a proposal in which we decided that we wanted to bring back the culture of food to our students here in the United States and show them just the intersection between the history culture and how food, um, how that all intertwines. And I think that's truly what your your show does, Rocio, is that you're talking about how influences from Spain and from Africa and from the Middle East have all influenced what Mexican food is today. And so we wanted to bring that back to our students. We wanted to show them the written, richness of the culture. So we got the grant and we just had a, a fantastic time learning from all of these cooks in Mexico. And some are home cooks. We went to 
formal schools. We went to just in little villages in Oaxaca, and we just had a fantastic time. How have you started then to translate this experience? I mean, obviously it hasn't reached you your personal path immensely, no doubt, but it's not always easy or obvious how to actually translate that into significant approaches for students to really grasp what is behind a language and it's a whole culture. So how, how have you started to capitalize this experience? So I actually teach younger kids right now, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And one thing that I did this year was I divided them into tables based upon different foods that you would find in, in Mexico. So things like nopales, which are the cactus paddles, and chapulines, which are the crickets that they eat in Oaxaca, and cacao, which is chocolate. And what I noticed is that the kids, I've never been exposed to these types of foods. And I told them, like, all of your tables are divided by food. And they just couldn't believe that people eat crickets and, and what do they taste like? And, you know, what's the texture like? So it gets them to think, wow, around the world, we all don't eat the same food. And at first it might seem different, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. And maybe I'd like to try that. So I think it really opens up their minds to that. Not everybody is like them. Um, with an older level of kids, you can explore different recipes and say, like, why are they using the certain ingredient? Or what sort of language are they using? And you can compare an old recipe, something from the 1800s of how to make ice cream versus something from today. Like, and how are they the same and how are they different? And you can really get into, you can look at language and you can really get into different aspects of culture just with food. And it's amazing. I'm not really entirely sure what's the density of, of the Latino or Latino heritage population in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I, we do get a lot of students who, whose parents may have been born um, in Mexico and they're born in the United States and they have um, little bits and pieces that they learn about their, their culture because of their parents cooking or um, different things that they do. But then sometimes it's an awakening for them. I mean, Mexico is such a huge country and I might get a, a student from Michoacan that does doesn't know what a chapulín, the, the grasshopper or cricket is, um, because they might not eat that in Michoacán. So within Mexico, um, it's so diverse. And so even you could even be from Mexico and realize that, you know, in one state they eat very different than another state. So it's really cool to be able to expose even these kids that do have Mexican heritage to different, um, different cuisines and different, even, you know, language within Mexico and why it is the way it is. Yeah, of course, language is... Uh the thread you are you're pulling no to to explore yes. at least our main unit where this will all be incorporated is when we talk about markets so we try to have the students participate in their own sort of market where they earn pesos and then they get to spend them and we will be talking a lot more about um, the markets of mexico and what they look like and how they compare to our markets here in the united states i took a lot of photos this summer to try to show kids these are what markets look like and not all markets are the same and sometimes you have outdoor markets in mexico like the tianguis and then sometimes you have indoor markets that are permanently there i think the idea is to to show them something new and then to have them relate um, relate it back to something that they know. So it's more of like an awakening sort of experience, just kind of inspire them, I guess. I, I just can't help myself mentioning that I interviewed uh, Little Hurts. It's a charity that is uh, based in America. They work with schools specifically, helping come up with ideas to introduce precisely edible insect farming 
I'm sure they'll be more than happy to hear from you if they don't already have because and, and any of the listeners you know that are in, involved in education is a great resource for everybody to, to use. Now, going back a bit about your recent experience here in Mexico, when we met, you briefly shared with me how the classes that you have here in so far at that moment started helping you further understand and acquire so many skills specific to Mexican cooking. But, you know, it's fair to say that not all Mexican food aficionados have had the opportunity or even considered the possibility of attending classes with traditional cooks here in Mexico. Uh, or in America. And you have also previously shared the concern regarding how food and culture doesn't necessarily always translate that well when it comes to mainstream cookbooks. So I would like you to share with the audience which were the experiences now that you came in contact with all these traditional cooks here here in Mexico. How has these experiences inspired you? And why would you recommend doing these to the audience? So I guess like at first when I started coming to love Mexican food, I did realize that there were sort of two different types of Mexican cookbooks out there. And of course, I only had access at the time to what was here um, in the United States. And so I would sometimes take out a book on Mexican cooking only to return it the next day because I just was disappointed. And I, and I said, you know, that's not the food I remember eating in Mexico. And then I would find books by like Diana Kennedy, let's say and I said wow like this is what you know I need to read and she really knows what she's talking about but I guess what I came to understand is that the one book was directed at an audience that maybe only had access to certain ingredients so it was already like trying to come up with a fusion sort of recipe so that people could try to recreate something that was, you know, supposedly Mexican, but it was never quite going to be that way versus the other was more of like preserving and documenting actual Mexican cooking. So the tape of my blog at the beginning was to truly as best as possible recreate recipes and flavors that I had tried in Mexico to the best of my ability with my ingredients here. And, you know, I would go to such lengths as like, I can't find this, so I'm going to grow it in my garden. That's how grown um, tomatillos in my garden. We grew corn this year and beans, different squashes. I, I tried to make my husband's from Mexico and his mom makes the most amazing um, tamales de calabaza, which are these pumpkin and shrimp tamales. And I said, you know, I, I want to make them, but I didn't have the right sort of pumpkin here. And so I grew it myself. And so I think um, just going back to the original question is that there's so much to learn by going to Mexico and actually learning from the home cooks themselves. But I think at the end of the day, what you need to remember is how much can that translate to your own home country? Because sometimes we just don't have access to certain ingredients. And I think that's how food historically has evolved is that there's always waves of immigrants coming and going different places. And they're always trying to recreate what they had um, at home. And I and you mentioned this in one of your podcasts um, when you talked about the Arab influence in Puebla creating tacos and I think that's just um, that's always going to happen so I learned this in some of my classes about finding that balance finding that happy medium of what is authentic you know what is too much I guess 
No, absolutely. I'm really impressed to, to learn about your, your kitchen garden. It must be quite a sight indeed. I mean, you're also quite fortunate because although you are, of course, in Pennsylvania, there's so many Mexican immigrants and with it, of course, there's a big business of grocers, traders, importing as much as possible, obviously. But, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, what about people, Mexicans, you know, Mexican food aficionados are, are in Australia? or in Asia, or in Europe, you know, where you can't even grow because of the, of the weather conditions. But it, it's absolutely true, and I'm, I'm really interested in the way the cooks have walked you through explaining the silver lightning. It's normal that a traditional cuisine like that of Mexico, which is listed in uh, UNESCO as intangible heritage, is such a big cultural institution that it sort of works against its own survival. So I'm really, really uh, happy that those uh, traditional cooks that you encountered have addressed this issue. Uh, I don't know if uh, there was something more that, that you would like to share precisely about that, that you you know, were either specifically told or you just saw in the way they cooked. So yeah, the, a lot of them gave us and shared with us their recipes, but they did mention like in your home country, you might not be able to find this and this could be a substitute. And I think their whole idea and sharing their recipes with us was not that you'll never be able to make this again, but yes, you will be able to make this again, but your version is always going to be your version and it's going to be different. And, you know, I went to Escamex, um, which is the school of gastronomy in Mexico city. And we even all, there were three different groups of us working on the same recipe and we all had the same ingredients. And even though we all had the same ingredients, each of our salsas turned out differently. And it just goes to show you that there is also something um, in terms of technique when it comes to cooking. So even if you did have the very, very same ingredients, like it's always going to be different. Like my, my husband always says, you know, my mom's, you know, red rice is different than my grandma's, even though it's the same recipe. And I think it's more about like that it's okay and it should be accepted that we are allowed to make interpretations um, on these, you know, traditional and what, you know, some people might call authentic recipes. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely. And again, that takes me back to the conversation with Meli Martinez. Yes. There's so many subtleties in the differences every cook's hand produces. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, everything has to do with uh, the final result, regardless of whether you even make it in Mexico. Yes. Have you thought then or considered giving classes, cooking classes? Um, I would absolutely love to give cooking classes. It's something that I've, I talk about on a daily basis. I feel like sometimes more for me, it's about like all of the red tape that's involved with things, you know, am I allowed to do this in my home kitchen, etc. But, you know, they ask questions or should I do it like this? Should I do it like that? And I just love seeing it's so amazing to see people make your recipe. And once again, it's the same idea that you bring people into your home. You teach them what you know, then they're free to go and put their own spin on it and, you know, make their own interpretation of it. And so, yes, it's something I would absolutely love because it's part of like what, what I love doing is sharing with people what uh, Mexican food is and what I came to love about it and just showing them that it can be totally different and completely new and fresh. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you're a teacher at heart. I mean, it's just, it's a no brainer. 
when do you see this happening? I think Pittsburgh deserves to have you teaching. I would love to make something like this happen within the year. And I think as a teacher, I'm so blessed to have the summers off. And so I feel like that's when I do the majority of my creative work. Um, and I could see something like that blossoming this upcoming summer. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted to hear. Very good. I mean, I'm sure the audience will be polishing their agendas to make some space to fly to Pittsburgh. <laughs> what I really like about all your work is that you are uh, creating, but also acquiring experiences, translating that and projects for your students and for yourself. And uh, there's another aspect of your career that is that you are also an entrepreneur. Well, in your many travels to Mexico with your husband, you decided to start your micro business trading vanilla pots, which is native to Mexico. You decided to source it directly from a farming co-op from Papantla, Veracruz. Mexico's most famous vanilla producing region. This is a cross-cultural entrepreneurial project because you are championing the talents of the traditional farmers. I think this also adds human value to business. Many people don't know much about how vanilla is grown. You don't just harvest it from supermarket shelves. So please share all these wonderful details of, of these excursions and, and how you came to develop your own micro business and you know, how did you choose a platform and how did you start selling. So. Please. Sure. So the idea of vanilla, my husband is from Veracruz, as you mentioned, he's from Costa Rica, and he's actually from a little smaller town, Coatzintla, and it's not too far from Papantla, it's about 40 minutes, and I have always loved to bake. I think baking is my first love and cooking is my second love, and I, my mom and I, when I was probably just finishing high school, we learned how to make our own um, vanilla extract just using vanilla beans, and at the time, of course, vanilla beans are super expensive and the only way that we could get any sort of bulk vanilla beans was you know through the internet and the internet was very new at the time and I think we could only get vanilla from Madagascar maybe from Tahiti so I guess jump a few years down the road and you know I learned that my husband's from the vanilla growing region of Mexico and I don't know why the idea didn't occur to me sooner but on one of his trips back to visit his family so he went and he brought me back a whole kilo of vanilla beans and they just smelled incredible and I was like this is the best vanilla I've ever seen and it they, they were oily um, as vanilla should be and the beans were pliable and I said I need to share this with the rest of the world and of course I would have ordered vanilla beans Mexican vanilla beans online much sooner but I, I just couldn't find a good source so that's why um, we decided to set up our own little online shop and selling um, Mexican vanilla beans because just like everything we were so passionate about things that come from Mexico you know besides sales in the United States we've also sold internationally we have the shop open it's really great I mean it's amazing to hear people say like we love your vanilla it smells so great it was we were so happy when it arrived but um, I would love to even talk more about how vanilla is grown and just like the process so that people have an idea of everything that it takes to produce a vanilla bean. One thing that I learned about um, vanilla was that it's only harvested once a year. Unlike other crops where you might get like two to three harvests in a year, vanilla is only harvested once. The flowers are pollinated around April and May. It's a very intensive, labor-intensive process because it's all done by hand. There are bees that are native to Mexico that will occasionally pollinate the flowers, but it's mainly done by hand. And then once 
once the vanilla pod is produced from each flower, one flower will produce one pod, they have to stay on the vine for nine months. And so the um, vanilla pods are green when they're harvested around December. So once they're harvested, um, when they're picked green, they have no smell of vanilla. And the smell and the flavor are really formed through the curing process, it means that they put it out in the sun for um, almost a month's worth of time and they have to sweat the beans to produce oils. And once again, this is all done by hand. It is an extremely labor-intensive process to produce one vanilla bean and it's nature. And so vanilla beans are going to have imperfections, but as long as the flavor and the smell are there, then you have good vanilla. And so the vanilla beans for this upcoming year won't be ready until March or April of 2018. Uh, we don't have any vanilla beans right now, but we are working um, closely with several farmers near Papantla to have vanilla this upcoming spring. So I just think that it's an amazing process and it's one that when you do buy vanilla, you say like, this is what I'm putting my money towards, like this, all this hard work that went into this one product. I'm sure people are now trying to find more about your shop. Uh, the name of your shop is Voladores Vainilla. The platform that you chose is Etsy. Would you talk us through why did you choose the name? And also, which has been the reaction from the farmers that have entered this type of commerce with you? So the name um, Voladores Vanilla, um, Voladores means flyers um, in Spanish. And if you ever visit the Papantla region of Veracruz, Mexico, you will be able to observe this pre-Hispanic tradition. So basically what happens is there are five men that are dressed in red and white clothing and they have a um, specific hat that they wear, the penacho. And there's a ceremonial pole usually in the middle of the town square. It's very tall and they climb up and there's a guy at the top. He stands in the middle and he plays uh, a flute and the other guys um, tie ropes around themselves. And then at the right moment, They dip backwards and kind of fall into the air and put their arms out as if they were birds like flyers and they spin down to the very bottom and it's an act of courage by these men it's something that they have grown up from the time they're little that they're taught it's a continuation as I said of a tradition that happened before the Spanish ever arrived and it is believed that these voladores may have been the original cultivators of vanilla because vanilla was a wild crop it grew in the jungle and in the understory and the reason that they were able to discover vanilla is probably because it ripened on its own. It fell off the vine and just kind of began to, I guess, decompose on the forest floor. And they probably were walking through the forest and smelled this amazing smell. And so it is thought that maybe these voladores or maybe the people from Papantla were the people that, um, I guess, originally decided to cultivate vanilla in this way. So we thought it was very appropriate to pull one cultural aspect of the region of Papantla and, and pair it with another, which is vanilla. And that's where we came up with our name. Um, as I mentioned, the market is really dominated um, right now by Madagascar, and Madagascar often sets the price um, for vanilla. So if they have a good season, then unfortunately, you know, Mexican farmers would get a low price for vanilla, whether they have a good season or not, and vice versa. If, if Madagascar has a bad season, then, you know, prices go up and Mexican farmers would get more. But unfortunately, the market is dependent upon, you know, Madagascar's market. And so my husband, Roberto, and I wanted to change that and help Mexican farmers get a fair price for all their hard work that they're doing. Um, so we have this sort of direct trade model 
where we are working directly with the farmers and it has been received very, very well. Um, in recent years in the region of Veracruz, a lot of people have sold their land um, because it's a very oil-rich region. You know, farmers have made more money off of that or they switch from growing vanilla to growing corn because they can make quicker money. But there are some, you know, old or passionate farmers that are still growing vanilla, even though it is very labor intensive. And they've expressed to us that they just want to see the tradition continued because it's a cultural and culinary heritage of Mexico. This is where vanilla grew first and they want it to continue um, just like cacao. Like, um, And hopefully like we can continue this support these farmers and directly trading with them and giving them a good price, you know, a fair price for what they're doing. No, I mean, that's fantastic. So you're reintroducing not only slow food, but slow farming as well. And appreciating, you know, waiting for nature to do his job and purchasing when it's available and waiting when it's not. But also I'm wondering if in the near future you will be introducing in your business model some way of preserving some of the vanilla that you buy, not only selling the whole beans uh, for people to obviously do whatever they want with them. But I don't know if you have thought of developing uh, your own vanilla-based products. May they be, you know, edible or beauty products uh, so you could diversify your range of, of products, you know, using the same high-quality vanilla. Absolutely. So as of right now, we're just selling the vanilla beans, the vanilla pods, but that's something that I've thought extensively about. Of course, I'm always interested in the culinary aspect of things. And I guess the next um, most wanted product would be something like vanilla extract. And what a lot of people don't know about vanilla extract that's sold, um, you know, from big companies um, is that they, they will put additional ingredients in it like corn syrup, which I'm um, very much against using corn syrup. But so I think it's something that, that we are pursuing. I would love to be able to offer our own vanilla extract that it's it's an alcohol based and and it has the um, vanilla beans in it. And so it's just a matter of getting you know the necessary permits, um, etc., to do that. But another idea that I had for the future of just um, boladores and bull is to maybe in the future do some sort of culinary tourism to the area. It's a very remote area that's not visited often by tourists. I guess outside of Mexico, you know, there are Mexican tourists that visit this region, but I guess rarely do I hear about people from the United States visiting the region of Veracruz. And it has so much, as you said, to offer. It's such a um, diverse region. I always call it the California of Mexico. It's this sort of long state um, that spans, you know, from north to south. And it's very diverse. And so I think I'd um, love to be able to take, you know, a group of people there um, to show them, like, this is how vanilla is grown. And here's an example of a small farmer growing vanilla. Here's an example of a farmer that's growing um, wild vanilla um, that's just grown amongst the rainforest. And here's an example of a large producer of vanilla and what, what that all looks like. You know, I know people are interested in that and um, I would love to be able to share that with others. Absolutely. And it just makes perfect sense. That would be a wonderful way to combine all that no, in, in, your, in your future projects. Yes, absolutely. Um, so something hopefully that we can see out and see through. I'll be waiting to hear about that well given the fact that the next vanilla harvest will uh, occur soon in, in december but won't be available uh, as it has to go through this very lengthy process as you just explained uh, until the next year I'm, I'm curious to know and i'm sure the audience as well uh, how can people place early orders or can they place early orders in order to ensure 
their purchase on your website or contact you directly? How does that work? Yeah, so um, we have a store set up on both Etsy and eBay. Um, the best contact platform could be um, through Etsy, or you can contact us directly at voladoresvanilla at gmail.com. We would happily set an order aside for you in advance. Um, that way it would be ready in the springtime. So yes, and any questions in the meantime, we'd happily answer at any of those, um, you know, that email or through Etsy if you would like to send us a message. Great, great. Well, um, don't worry if you just didn't catch that. Uh, all the links will be available on this episode's description and also on the website. Just make a mental note to remember that. And Nicole, we're reaching the end of this interview, but I, I really have to say that in spite of the many interesting angles I wanted to approach this conversation with. Everything you do, I find it very, very interesting and the unique approach you're taking to teaching and now your entrepreneurial work and, and your future projects. And um, and I think it's been a really enriching uh, interview and hopefully uh, has inspired people also to find new ways to pursue their culinary and cultural interests. Uh, regardless of their nationality. I want to quote the Costa Rican folk singer and some writer, Chavela Vargas. Chavela used to say, we Mexicans like to be born wherever the hell we please. And uh, you happen to be born in Pittsburgh, but I know you are a true Mexican at heart. I do. I feel very Mexican at heart. <laughs> I know, I know. And it feels. So I want to ask some last final questions. So I would like you to share with the audience. Uh, which have been the latest food publications that have, you know, blown your mind or inspired you in, in, in a way that you would think the audience uh, must read uh, those. So go ahead. Well, that's such a great question, because if you follow me on Instagram, you know how much I love uh, to read Mexican cookbooks and things about Mexican cuisine. But uh, first, you know, Rocio, I really have been reading um, Sabor. This is Mexican oh. food, which is Rocio's publication. <laughs> Thank you. And it's truly amazing. And I love when it comes out and I look I truly look forward to it. Um, it's such a such an inspiration. So that would be one for my birthday. I recently got um, the book Nopalito, which is based off of a Mexican. Mexican um, restaurant that was um, coming out of the San Francisco area it takes a traditional approach once again to Mexican food, but using local ingredients, which I'm very interested in, you know, using local, growing organic whenever possible. Another great website that I often visit is one called Delicias Prehispanicas, and they have just really great information about culinary events that are going on in Mexico um, or just different new publications. Um, love to read that. Of course, I've been reading lots about vanilla, you know, in our recent trip to to Mexico, we uh, I always stock up on books whenever I go, and so it's you know we usually spend a day and a half visiting all the bookstores and in, in Mexico City and elsewhere looking for books. So I came back with quite a few vanilla books, and then finally um, one that always um, inspires me ever since um, I visited that region of Mexico is the book Heartwood. Heartwood is a restaurant in the um, Yucatan Peninsula actually in Tulum, Quintana Roo, and they, you know, use local ingredients um, in a new way and just to provide that fresh flavor. So 
I think once again, it's all about those all inspire me. It's all about, you know, using what I have available, but still being able to put my own little Mexican spin on it and, you know, providing those, those fresh flavors. So those would be my top breeding um, sources right now. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, thank you so much. I'm very honored to be on that list. And uh, <laughs> of course, I'm going to put all those links on, on my website. So uh, please, if you want to also be taken by all these great books and, and, and inspiration don't forget to to check these episodes blog posts and finally well would you please tell the listeners how can they contact you on social media emails well we already mentioned the shop uh email you know please again uh where can they find you and, and come in contact with you Absolutely. So you can um, find me through my blog at flanandapplepie.wordpress.com. You can also find me on Instagram, flanandapplepie on Instagram. I also have a Gmail account, which is flanandapplepie at gmail.com. Um, so those are my main, um, I guess, personal accounts where you can see all of my Mexican culinary adventures. And then, of course, Voladores Vanilla has its own separate account um, on Instagram as well as their own Gmail account. And we have our shops on Etsy and eBay. And hopefully we will have our own website up and running soon. Oh, looking forward. Well, Nicole, thank you again. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I don't want to say this is the last time. Hopefully when you start sharing about your classes or whatever new crazy and wonderful adventure you are uh, embarking yourself into uh, people please remember to follow Nicole on Instagram again is flan and apple pie her blog is under the same name as she just mentioned and all the links will be available on this episode's description and on my website so thank you Nicole again and of course I wish you good luck with all your projects Thank you, Rocio. It has been quite a pleasure um, to be on your show today. I appreciate it. Pleasure is all mine. And for the audience as well, I'm sure. Uh, please stay tuned. Uh, we will return with the show after this break. Day or night, the busy streets of Mexico's towns and cities are constantly buzzing with music, people, and the delicious smells that emanate from an unimaginable and amazing range of foods, snacks, and drinks. The fall issue of Sabor, this is Mexican food, celebrates the world-famous Mexican street food and the cultural value of the nation's rich and ethnically diverse cooking traditions. With more than 16 emblematic recipes from the Grand Mexican Street Food Repertoire and five in-depth articles exploring the memorable stories of immigration and entrepreneurship, of family recipes and shared cultures to inspire you making a delicious cultural feast. To know more about the wonderful articles and recipes to bring the irresistible Mexican street food into your home, please go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine. Take Sabor with you on all your digital devices. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined.
You can show your support to the show. Simply leave a review through your podcast app so more people can find and enjoy the show. You can also join Paz de Chipotle's Patreon program by becoming a sponsor on Patreon, the largest platform that connects creators with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and select the type of donation you want to make. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and be part of this delicious story. I love hearing from you. You can reach me by following the show on Twitter. You can find it as Chipotle Podcast or send me an email at hello pazachipotle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. You can find a direct link on the description of this episode. To find more information about this project, please go to pazachipotle.com. The next episode of the show will air on November 27. This time, from a beautiful island I am fortunate to also call home. My own paths lead me back to England, from where I'll continue a cross-cultural gastronomic journey celebrating Mexican food's amazing capability to bring together people and celebrate life. So see you all there. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Goodbye from me, my friends. Until the next time.